You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. How long are you going to wait? They told you to get your resume in order, to punch your ticket, to fit in, and to follow instructions. They told you to swallow your pride, not to follow your dream. They promised trinkets and prizes and possibly riches if you would just suck it up and be part of the system, if you would merely do what you were told and conform. They sold you debt and self-storage and reality TV shows. They sold your daughters and sons, too, all in exchange for what would happen later when it was your turn. It's your turn. This is the second time that I've opened the show with an excerpt from Seth Godin's brilliant book, The Icarus Deception. Hey, hello, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm excited to announce that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com where you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial of their service at www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. You can choose from over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. If you get value from today's show, please visit us on iTunes and Stitcher and leave us your rating and review. Then click subscribe. Also, definitely visit changeyourstorypodcast.com and download your free ebook Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. I would love to hear from you to get your impressions of the show and to tell me the things that you would like to see in it going forward. You can reach me at lewis, that's L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a man who actually did play the game. He was one of those in the, let's say, conformity circle. He was part of the corporate world. But one day, he decided that it was his turn. And he acted on that decision. He became an entrepreneur. He took the risk. His name is Tapas Banerjee. He's the CEO of WebAge Solutions, a $7.5 million company providing cutting-edge IT training to Fortune 500 companies. Tapas founded the company in 1999 after leaving IBM, where he was a core part of the team 
that developed the e-commerce engine responsible for powering sites like Nordstrom.com today. Under Tapas's leadership, WebAge Solutions has been featured in the Canadian 500 fastest growing company list twice. Tapas lives in Toronto with his wife and two young children. I had the privilege to meet Tapas and become his friend at our mutual health club. And every time I'd have a conversation with him, I would be uplifted because of his openness, his sharp mind, his overall knowledge, and his passionate entrepreneurial spirit. So I am honored to invite him today to the show. Welcome, Tapas Banerjee. It's so good to have you here. Thank you, Louis. My friend, you deserve everything I said. And as always, I like to begin at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Calcutta in 1968 uh, in India. And how long did you remain in India? Um, I was there till the age of 23. I, I finished my bachelor's in electrical engineering and uh, then worked for a company called Tata, uh, which is probably now familiar here because Tata Consultant Services is one of the large IT company that provides a lot of offshoring work here. Uh, as well as, if you remember, the car called Nano, which was the smallest car ever and was selling for the cheapest price ever in the world. It, it's actually a $100 billion company in India. Wow. Yes. So I worked for them, and uh, after two years, I got a scholarship here at Memorial, a full scholarship to come to my master's, and that's when I left at the age of 23. And uh, when you came here, did you intend to stay, or were you planning to go back? I was planning to go back, uh, but I met a beautiful lady at my university who, you know, ended up being my girlfriend and now my wife. So, <laughs> I think you made the right move, Tapas. <laughs> <laughs> now, in India, did you come from a large family? No, actually, um, interestingly, the whole Indian middle class at the time I was born um, was was being preached by the government to keep the keep the population small because we were trying to be independent um, on food supplies, etc. So the, the the rule that, you know, everybody followed was, you know, you two, you two. So people had two kids uh, in middle class, pretty standard at that time. So everybody had two kids. So I was one of that generation. <laughs> wow. Would you, would you repeat that rule? How did it go? It goes, you two, you two. So... <laughs> So basically, we're trying to become independent in you know, food production because we just had a famine um, a couple of years back and 100 million uh, people were affected. Uh, wow. The, yeah, so the government tried to kind of generate the awareness with the middle class and the middle class actually followed. So if you look at my generation of Indians, chances are high they are, come from a family of one more sibling. That's it. Hmm. And who were your parents? What, kind, what did they do? Uh, my dad worked um, in uh, Imperial Tobacco, a uh, tobacco company in India at the time, um, in the inventory management side of things. Um, and my mom was a housewife. So who were your strongest influences when you were, you know, a child? Um, I, I think it was, uh, it was my dad uh, quite a bit, um, as well as I would say 
uh, you know, the competition there is peers and uh, uh, the given a hundred, you know, like hundred million people almost in my state and about a billion people in the country, um, y- you have to rise to the top to basically be somebody. And if you're not somebody, uh, the consequences are not, not great uh, because it's not a rich country. Um, so I realized that pretty quickly by grade nine, 10, and I started working very hard to like the two things that you can be uh, pretty easily in India is engineer or doctor. The competition is peers, but if you come to the top, like in my case, um, there was thousand students chosen from thirty-eight thousand kids that sat in the state exam to become an engineer. And my drive was to become an engineer at that point, and uh, that's the competition. So the competition was the other thing that shaped my, you know, work ethics from childhood, pretty much. Oh, I see. And um, so you won a scholarship, and uh, I guess what percentage of uh, people from your demographic did get uh, scholarships? Uh, to get into engineering, it was uh, a, a 38 to 1. So you are looking at a 2%, 3%. Fantastic. Now, when you first arrived, did you experience a, a major culture shock or not? <laughs> I, I did because I arrived at Newfoundland um, from, Cal- <laughs> from Calcutta, a city of 15 million people. <laughs> To a province of half a million people, so uh, number one, that because it's a much smaller place, and number two, um, because culturally Newfoundland being an island, and at the time, internet wasn't that uh, you know ubiquitous, so um, they they were very very isolated from the rest of the world. So uh, you know, culturally, I was speaking to people that spoke in the frozen Irish accent 150 years back. Uh, so there's there's accent difference, there is a language difference somehow, and then there's a cultural difference because they're kind of frozen at the time, uh, in their way, right? So, but but you know, 23, I was I was open to anything. Anything different was interesting, and continues to be actually. So, I love the openness of the people. You know, you, you go into the bay. Um, you know, to to probably get some lobster, and you know, rather than saying "Who are you?" they basically say, "Come on in, have a beer." So, <laughs> so it's very welcoming people. I love well, it. They are. I just uh, met a few when I was traveling to Las Vegas, yeah. and I gotta say, there is something so charming and wonderful and warm and open about them. But you know, you said something about yourself, which I find to be true that. You were open for anything, and you still are, and it's true. I think that one of your gifts is your genuine, passionate curiosity about people and about life. You have a, a, a strong sense of inquiry, and that keeps you very, um, well, engaged and, um, and youthful, too. Thank now, you. Y- you met your wife in Newfoundland, didn't you? Yes. That- so... You came from Calcutta. She <laughs> is a, she's from Newfoundland. I yes. would love to know a little bit about how that uh, first how what were those first encounters like? <laughs> um, so 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 we, my professor uh, at Memorial um, ended up at their bay, and she was going to Memorial at the time herself. Uh, but I met her at the bay, and uh, her dad kind of ran a Walmart 
if you may say at the bay like a three-story store that basically had everything and um, so my professor met uh, her dad and really liked the place and next week wanted to go back and I went back and uh, met Laura I mean you know she it was very interesting I mean here's the Irish Catholic blonde girl from Newfoundland and here is a boy from Calcutta I mean the world's coming to be so small now so uh, it was very good we, we, we liked each other quite a lot at the beginning we are both a uh, little outgoing people uh, but still with a with a great sense of responsibility so uh, you know we, we kind of connected uh, pretty quick and and kept in touch for a while before you know, she moved in with me five years later, and then you know we kind of started the company almost together. She she's selling and me doing IT stuff at the beginning, and then you know eventually she stepped out because you know one of us wanted to have a bit of life because we didn't want both of us to be working 10, 12 hours every day. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and you know, kids got bigger responsibilities came in, so we kind of divided up the responsibility, and and, and you know we 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 love each other, and hopefully we can. You know, we wish to stay together all our life. So that's the way. That's fantastic. So let, let me ask you this. What what was the the common spark that connected the two of you? Because like you said, you came from such different backgrounds. What was the common spark? Do you know? Yeah, I think it's um, it's, it's both of us are a, a little a little bit of an outgoing personality and, and does not like um, you know, does, uh, always interested in new things and always, um, you know, the, for the lack of better words, uh, believe that uh, your future is bigger than your past. Mm. And, and I think we both keep driving towards that and she keeps challenging me, you know, like when my company kind of was stalling at six million, she, she challenged me. She basically said, I'm disappointed in you. I didn't expect you to be staying at the same level. What are you not doing differently? Are wow. you trying this? Are you trying this? And two things she told me that I actually implemented and, and, and they're, they're phenomenal, like, you know, that they worked. So, so she's just not my wife. She basically is my challenger. <laughs> That's fabulous. And you know, you know what's really wonderful about what you're telling me? Uh, there are some people whose egos would get in the way and they couldn't listen to that kind of challenge. They'd be offended. They would feel that their manhood was being affronted. But, you know, the fact that you can be open to that is a sign that that's a healthy, strong, mature relationship. That's wonderful. Now, I love to ask this question of all my guests. Did you have a particular childhood dream of what you would become or wanted to become when you grew up? Um, like, you know, when I, as I was growing up, the childhood dream, I would say, um, was, was very much to be, to be having my options, to be successful, to be able to enjoy um, what I do. Um, you know, to be connected to my family, being looked up to by my family, you know, those were kind of the abstract goals uh, before, you know, proper goals formed in my life. Um, and when the goals formed, it was very much um, how it always revolved around um, being good at what I do without a particular path I think at the beginning was how do I become really good at something I do like 
if I'm an engineer, can I, if I'm at my class, can I come within the top 5% or can I come at the top? Uh, at that point, without knowing why I'm doing it, but it was more like I wanted to be that person because, you know, that person was looked up to by other people. Mm. Um, you know, that person had uh, a more fulfilling life, for the lack of better words, you know. Well, you know, Anthony Robbins talks about certain, about six or seven basic human needs. It sounds like one of your driving forces is significance. Yes. sense of significance. And that's, that's powerful. That's wonderful. What kinds of work did you do before choosing the entrepreneur's life? So, so here is how it panned out. So, I was actually, I, I left Newfoundland with a job in Ottawa to to teach programming. Um, and while I was at that company for six months, I saw the company expand probably two times, like significantly in front of my eye. And I went, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. What kind of business is this? This is like technical training business. This is like just at the beginning of technical training. This is booming. I would like to be an entrepreneur because I realized pretty quickly that, you know, wealth, one of the top four goals in my life are, are, you know, one of them is to be physically and mentally healthy. One other goal is to be financially strong, to have options. And, you know, third goal has always been to be loved and be able to love. And the fourth goal being having the time to enjoy it all. Mm. Um, these are the four goals that are kind of overarching for me um, and came from a philosopher um, that I read. And, uh, you know, the, the, I was pretty sure that the financial wealth is going to come from entrepreneurism because it's, the, I, I studied a bit and I realized that the top 1% are entrepreneurs. Um, so I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I realized to start a business, I needed to first know the things that I'm going to be selling, i.e. IT. And B, I needed to be able to manage and have processes. Um, so I basically followed my work career in that direction. Um, I became an IT you know, specialist at IBM um, and then eventually became a manager at IBM. So I could understand IT as well as you know, have the processes from a solid company that I can borrow as I move you know, to, to start my own and, and logically followed that to start my own. Oh, so from the beginning, even when you were in that corporate structure, so you were already, you already had your sights on creating your own independent enterprise. Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, another great thing that's coming up, folks, is if you notice, he's, uh, Tapas is very clear about creating goals and, um, that's important, uh, such an important element of any story that's going to manifest into success. What obstacles have you had to overcome to become a successful entrepreneur? Because it's not easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the obstacles always at the beginning are that you have to build that snowball that that has its own momentum. Um and the, and the first biggest obstacle you face is, you know, how much effort are you ready to put? And uh, for me, it was basically seven days a week, nine to 12. By 12, I'm in midnight. Um, and I did that for probably five years uh, to build that critical mass because I, 
I always believed in stem, building a company by bootstrapping. I never borrowed a you know dollar basically building the company. Um, so it was profitable from day one. To do that, you know the fundamental thing you do is that you always work hard because you cannot pay somebody to do much of the work to remain profitable. Um, so that was one big obstacle is to have the motivation to do that for five years. That means having no life pretty much. Um, and relationships suffered. Thankfully, I had, you know, somebody who knew me from before and trusted and, and gave me that, you know, luxury to be able to work those hours. Um, and the second obstacle you run into is that nobody knows you. So nobody wants to work for you. There is no history of you being successful. Mm. Right. So, so overcoming that at the beginning is, you know, a lot of showing your history and finding common minded people. Uh, and I hired somebody from IBM. Um, China, who came to Canada, knew uh, he could relate to my mindset coming from IBM and the kind of, you know, work that we did. He also worked in e-commerce, so we could bond. And I, I hired him, and then I hired another gentleman that I impressed at a company I was working, a training company that is, to come become my my salesperson. So, you know, then you bootstrap that. Like people come later because you are becoming successful. And uh, what they hear from the rest of the people that work for you, and and my belief has always been that of a repeat business. Uh, a repeat business belief is that, you know, every interaction you have, you get the job done, but you also improve the relationship. So so you know that builds, that snowball builds, and the repeat business mindset I have actually with my employees too is that I want repeat business from good employees, i.e. I want them to be there forever. And in a company of about 25 full-time people, I got eight that have been working here for more than 10 years. Wow. You know, are you familiar with the book that I quoted from, The Icarus Deception? I heard of it. What's wonderful about what you're saying is that, uh, well, you will definitely relate to it because he talks about the fact that the economy that is falling quickly by the wayside is the industrial economy. And what's replacing it is what he calls the connection economy. And what you're talking about is exactly that. The connection economy involves building strong, authentic relationships, not just uh, ambitiously driving for the money. So you've already got that going. That's that's phenomenal. That's part of why you're seeing the kind of success that you have. Now, are you familiar also with um, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Cash Flow Quadrant? Yes. Yeah, because you were describing that before when you said that you recognized that if you want to create wealth, not just earn a living, but create wealth, you really need to take the reins and become an entrepreneur. And that's true. Fantastic, man. You're, um, you're ahead of the curve, my friend. Well, I mean, it came from also, I think, as you're mentioning, now I'm realizing that that I have to become an entrepreneur also came out of the Kawasaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? He started with that and then... Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and develops the, uh, the principles in uh, the cash flow quadrant. Now, those of you listening to this show are also ahead of the game because you can get a copy of one of these books, an audio download copy of one of these books, absolutely free. Just go to www.audibletrial.com 
trial.com forward slash story power. That's www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Tapas. Were there times during this this push that you, I mean, you were aiming for something specific, but were there times when you wanted to quit? Um, I don't think I ever wanted to quit, but because you know there is no quitting in life. What I, what am I quitting, right? Like I I got to still build wealth. I still have to, you know, basically build the options, my financial options. So uh, I won't be really quitting the game. What I'll be quitting maybe the the current uh, initiative that I'm after, right? If if I don't believe in the success of it, then I will quit that. But um, so it was not so much about giving up on you know that game, but it, it was sometimes it was hard. I will mm-hmm. say that, right? Mm-hmm. So like you know at the beginning of the company, five six years down the road, I was burnt out. So that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always an obstacle because you can motivate yourself at times there. But it, that was really because of the hours I was working. And what I realized is that um, I wasn't enjoying life. Things that I like, I wasn't doing. Um, so I had to, you know, basically there was a program called Strategic Coach um, that I was becoming familiar with through a member of my Entrepreneurs Forum. And he started imparting those to me, saying, you're not taking vacations and you are not doing things you love to do outside work. So you got to start injecting those to get back, you know, that spirit. And so that was helpful in turning around that part of my life. And uh, and then the other one was the, during the recession, 2007, 2008, uh, things, were, things got really hard. Um, and we were, we were growing tremendously and suddenly we were stalling. And we had to basically, you know, cut down to the core of the company, uh, let a lot of people go who eventually became our contractors. We still work with them. Um, and then we are going through another growth phase now. So, you know, during the recession, after such a high, suddenly going to that low was difficult. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line, the focus remains to build sustainable profit. So the goal was to stay profitable you know, wait for our turn to grow again, and, uh, and and this time the the thing that opened the, you know, uh, cracked the code was to bring in a consultant that has seen companies grow, and and bring processes to build a company um, that we brought in from entrepreneurs organization uh, that I belong to uh, through a book called um, Scaling Up um, and implementing these processes through a consultant. Hmm. What I really like is that you, I heard you say, you didn't use these words, but that quitting was just not an option. And that is that philosophy of you burn your boats, you were going to conquer or die. And uh, that is part of the entrepreneurial success, entrepreneurial success mindset. It's wonderful. People should take note of that. Now, I wanted to know, do you consider yourself, now before I ask you that, what was your lowest point, would you say? Did you have a moment that you remember when it was just like it seemed maybe you wouldn't have the strength or the energy or the drive to go on? Was there a moment like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Can can you talk talk about it a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the towards the beginning of the company when we are driving really hard, uh, my hours were, you know, nine to five teaching, um, six to uh, twelve write material for new courses that I want to sell, and then twelve to four preparing for the next days of class. And I was sleeping three hours basically, and that what that does to you is it wipes you out and then also you know you're not doing anything positive that you know kind of fuels you other than work work of course you know gives me a lot of motivation i love it but everything has a limit and you know at a certain point it was trying to trying to drive me to a point that life is pretty bleak there is nothing to life um you know other than work and just i you know at one point of time i remember you know we are flying a plane and um suddenly something happened because the weather was bad and one side of the light went off and I went, well, this looks like we are going down. And, you know, a, a little thought crossed my mind was more like, does it really matter? Hmm. And I realized, no, it does matter. But that question that occurred in my mind told me that something has to change in my life. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. So did you just make a decision to start changing there? Or was it that intervention that a friend of yours mentioned that you should be putting more joyful activities into your life? I think it's my friend because I I realized that and I was, you know, I was going, okay, I got to find ways to improve my life. And I guess, you know, like they say that the teacher arrives when the student is ready, Right i.e. I was open to suggestions at that point after that. And and my friend's suggestion helped me kind of. It took me a bit of time actually to figure out what do I love because I forgot after six years. And what were the things that you discovered that you loved? Spending time with my family, my wife and my kids, and uh, time with my friends, and actually playing racket sports. Ah, what's your favorite <laughs> racket sport? It used to be table tennis, but now it's tennis. And I imagine that you're a competitive player. Yeah, and I, I love, I love, yeah, no, I, when I go in, I give all of it. And uh, I enjoy the process. It's, tennis is very, you know, brain as well as physics. So, you know, you just, <laughs> you're, you're giving it all and you, you want to win as much as, you know, you want to be, um, you know, you, you also want to be a, very respectful to the other other individual, but at the same time, you're giving it all. So that's always yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. That's wonderful. Are you, do you consider yourself a pessimist, a realist, or a visionary by choice? I think I'm an optimistic realist. And how would you define that? So I, I do believe in numbers quite a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm very spreadsheet oriented. Everything is calculated. I always know where I'm going. Um, it's never by chance. Um, but when, you know, when the bend in mind comes about a given situation, I can always be caught on the positive side by not a lot, but by a bit always, like I always expecting to work out, um, when I go in and, and I don't know, I mean, somebody has probably been always looking out for me because most things in my life worked out and, that optimism always is there even at the worst scenario i go things typically worked out for me so you know the other thing that is very 
useful is a thing that strategic coach teaches. Um, they give you a project planning tool uh, called Strategy Circle. And at the bottom of it is, is a very interesting thing they say. What they say is that every obstacle in your path is the raw material of achieving the goal. Mm. And and literally all the when you take a project and you don't know how to get there, if you write down the obstacles, and then against each of the obstacles, write down the way you're going to work around it or address it, and you combine those strategies, it becomes your project plan basically. Mm. I like that. That's really really good. When I ask that question. I asked it because recently one of my mentors spent some time outlining his definition of the three, pessimist, realist, and visionary. And the pessimist, in terms of setting a goal, of course will set the goal low because they're concerned about failing and being disappointed. The realist, it sounds like a positive thing, but the realist will set the goal a little higher, but will still draw the line at going too high because, well, the person's a realist. They think, you know, to go too high would be unreasonable, but the visionary is by nature unreasonable. And sets the goal at a level where it is impossible to reach. And so why would you do that? Because it seems that it's been proven that no matter where you set the goal, you always come a little bit short of it. Mm-hmm. So if you, take, and if you take the visionary stance and that doesn't bother you, then you shoot for the moon but you're definitely going to hit the stars, whereas (laughs) you're going to be higher than what the realist will achieve. And I loved when he told the story because um, he became a very successful man, but he said that when he was doing that in his profession of network marketing, people around him laughed at him constantly. They even told him, you know what? You're considered a joke because we know that you're always going to set some unreasonable goal. But the beauty of it is he wasn't worried about their judgment. And today, nobody's laughing. Very interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I found it fascinating to hear that. But I think that you lean toward the visionary because you see you qualified it by saying, I'm an optimistic realist. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I, I would never question a visionary, but I will basically say, let's phase it. Let's go phase one, phase two, phase three. Because what I find is that if you have a team of individuals around you, the more goals you set and hit, the more confidence they build and, and they can go after bigger goals. The, the worst is if you set two or three goals and if the team fails, because not everybody is a visionary and you need people around you to to build something. And it's important that all type of people around you feel the confidence as as you hit small goals every time. Mm-hmm. Now, Tapas, do you invest in personal development courses and training? I think you do. Yes, no, absolutely. We we got this coach from an entrepreneurs organization who is helping us, you know, build our corporate processes. Um, strategy basically we do a two-day strategy session at the beginning of a quarter 
and we define top five goals for the company and the top five goals of the partners that are in the mastermind group. And uh, and this strategy session has changed the company pretty much. And, and no, I totally believe in coaches because, you know, like without coaches, no athlete has ever been successful. So mm-hmm. the same applies to a, a CEO or a manager. I mean, if you want to improve, you need a coach. Absolutely. Are there certain thought leaders that you can think of, perhaps some of the more popular names that you look up to? Um, like, I believe that the first, you know, the top two books that, that any any individual should read if they want to be successful is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other one is uh, Dale Carnegie, um, you know, basically about relationship and building, you know, friendship. I forget the name of the book. Um, How to win friends yeah. and influence people. Exactly. Those are the yeah. two, I think, core books for anybody that um, that want to be anybody in the world. Um, right. The first one is task centric. The second one is relationship centric. And the task relationship in and yang are kind of the weapons that you use to grow in this in this economy. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. The yin yang. Did uh, what about? Um, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Yes, no, I, I, I read that much further down the road. Um, I actually read Jim Collins' uh, Good to Great before that, and mm-hmm. uh, and and Good to Great is also because because I wanted to build a company, and this is that's that's the fundamentals of building a company. Um, Napoleon Hill kind of comes after that, and I find Napoleon Hill to be. Uh, a, a very good, I mean, very good foundation um, because it talks about you have to have a goal in life and a burning desire to reach that goal because it's so easy to get distracted in life that if you don't have a burning desire, it's very easy for you to go left, right. Um I find it actually a very good listen when I run. When I run long distance, I find it to be a very good listen because, it, you know, it keeps you motivated uh, for, you know, the next little while. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you have it on an audiobook. Yes. Fantastic. And I guess, well, the next question, the answer is obvious, but I'll ask it anyway. In your opinion, what is the importance of mindset to your happiness and success? It's huge. I mean, one of the mindset that was taught by strategic coach that, you know, that I try to keep is uh, the mindset of uh, gap. So what they say is that, you know, in life, we always go for the perfect and perfection is not possible to achieve. Perfection is just a goal. Um, So the two kinds of people that live live in this world, one that says, how far have I come? And the other, that says, how far away from perfection am I? Mm-hmm. And the first type of people are mostly the, the happiest um, rather than the other one. You have to embrace the fact that life is imperfect. Um, so that mindset helps when you basically go, oh, my God, nothing's working out. You're, you are going from what you picture as perfect. But what is more important is to say when you come in every week, what did I achieve last week? Mm-hmm. And start with that. And then, you know, as you basically build a series of things you've achieved, you that momentum carries you through the next week very well. 
Absolutely. It, it, uh, it's really coming from a, a place of gratitude and appreciation and, and celebration. You know, um, I heard a wonderful comment from a brilliant entrepreneur, Alex Mandosian. I'll never forgot this. He said, don't let perfect become the enemy of good. Cool. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. I yeah. love that. Take imperfect action. Just do it. You know, otherwise you'll be paralyzed. Exactly. Now, you live in Canada like I do. Do you think That's... that Canada nurtures its entrepreneurs? I think it does. Um, the 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 great tax rate that they have that you know fourteen to fifteen percent is is doubly better than U.S., which is thirty percent on a really? business. Yeah. So this is, I mean, Canada is one of the top countries to attract entrepreneurs for that reason. Um, and the other tax break that Canada has nobody got is the that when you build a company um, and you sell it, anybody in your trust, so for example, for me, my trust consists of me, my wife, my two kids, I would actually be able to take $3.2 million home tax-free. I don't think any other country that I know of has that tax break because that's a huge push for somebody to build a company because you can take away 800000 in a per person in your trust. So your parents, whoever you have, one time in their life, if they're part of a, com part of a you know, trust that owns shares in a private equity, private company, they each can take away $800,000 tax-free. Wow. I never knew that. Yeah, so that gives you huge motivation to build a large company because the money you take home after selling the company, the large portion of can be tax-free. That's just an unbelievable, you know, boost. So when you mentioned this 15% before, is that what your your tax bracket becomes? No, your company's tax, the, ah. the tax on the company profit. Uh-huh, okay, it, okay. Yeah, of course, it wouldn't be individual, no. It would no. have to be the company. Yeah. Fantastic. What is your favorite book? What jumps to mind? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the favorite book is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Just because it lays the basic foundation. I think that's the, like the fundamental foundation of anything you do in the world. Do you go back to that book again and again and read it again? Absolutely. Like mm -hmm. I go back to sections. I mean, one or two sections jump out. Like one of them is very much says control the controllables. Control the controllables. And that's just so huge because there are so many times you were in a situation where you cannot control the outcome because it's in the hand of the client. It's in the hand of the supplier. And you go, oh my God, I need this result, but I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you can beat yourself up because you can't control it. But that sentence, control the controllables, lets you put down things you can control in the situation. And once you're done doing that, you are actually 70% there. And you feel so much better. Number one, you couldn't do anything more. And number two, you have already done 70%. Before that, you were sitting there paralyzed. Beautiful. It's very liberating. Can you describe your daily method of operation? Because I know you have a very distinct one. <laughs> yes. As you know, it consists of getting to the gym at 7. At 7. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Get to work at 8.30. Um, 
typically work till 6.30, um, typical 10-hour 10 10 workdays. And then when I go home, I actually am completely disconnected. I, I do not work at all. Um, I'm engaged with my family as much as I can um, in the rest of the night. Um, weekends, I try to, uh, one day of the weekend, I try to run a, a long distance, like 10K or something. It's typically my time to learn and listen to a book at the same time. And, and physical fitness, and then, you know, the rest of the weekend. I try to work probably two hours to just kind of wrap up the last week and, you know, plan out the next week. It, it, and, and basically that, that has always been my routine. I, I don't think I will ever stop working, you know, 10 hours a day because just because it, you know, it's just the fundamental theory of staying ahead of the curve, staying ahead of the, you remember, the excellence theory that I always have I want to be ahead um, and you know that always is at odds with you know family goals so I probably eventually would go down to eight hours or even less but I think that if I want to remain at the driving seat that's that's the minimum amount of effort that you need to put to to manage a company you know be able to uh, honestly you know believe the thing that I big time believe is that in a company you only lead by example Mm-hmm. Right. So when my employees see I come in 8:30, I leave at 6:30. I work, you know, hard all this time. I don't take lunch. I, you know, straight work 10 hours. And at any point of time, I'm focused. I'm working. I'm helping. I'm on the phone. I'm, you know, continuously working. They they see that and they they believe that they have to do similar stuff. They don't ever see that the boss is gone, and they are working. So, you know, I think that's a big part of. Success, I believe, in my in my foundations. That's fabulous because I mean, I, I mean, I've watched you and I know that you're extremely disciplined. And but you know what, you seem to do it with a sense of ease and balance, which is great. Thank you. You know, um, I don't see you as a a guy who's on a a treadmill. You know, like I have to hustle, I have to hustle. No, you you're doing it with a uh, a very I would say an elegant pace to it, which is very inspiring. Now, what when you go to the gym in the morning, what kind of workouts do you do? Uh, I have a program from my trainer, so I, I tend to do probably 20, 25 minutes of cardio and then uh, like five minutes of stretch and then probably 15 minutes of weights. And uh, sometimes you play tennis. Yeah, that, that'll be probably one day a week in the evening or in the early morning I play tennis. So that's that's over and above. Tennis is more workout and fun. <laughs> workout is sometimes workout. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, you say the downtime in the evening is with your family. What kinds of things do you do together? Quite a bit now involves, I have a two-year-old, so involves me going home and basically taking care of her till she goes to bed, till nine, nine o'clock or so. And then after that, spend some time with my older daughter. Uh, sometimes it involves, you know, doing math. If she has an exam next day, you know, doing math at nine o'clock, nine to ten thirty, probably get her get her prepped. Um, yeah, in all the times hanging out with her, watch TV, chat a bit, hopefully connect a bit with her. Uh, she's a teenager, so you know, connecting takes a bit of effort at times, but worth it. <laughs> and and you know, most of the days, hopefully, ten thirty to eleven, eleven thirty is my time with my wife. So 
you know, that's kind of our sequence Monday to Thursday, probably. Friday night is, of course, a little more relaxing. We probably stay up a little. Me and my wife probably hang out till one thirty, watching something that both of us like, like House of Cards or something. Yeah, cool. Uh, <laughs> cool. That's yeah. wonderful. And your wife uh, stays at home now? Yes, she's, uh, she's very busy with the two-year-old. And yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, the 13-year-olds, you know, she does skating five days a week. So my wife is running around with her, her school, her this, that, other thing, right? So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are the most important habits that you feel for an entrepreneur to succeed? Uh, I think um, the habits are, one, to remain profitable always. Two, the, the work ethics. And three is a process to, to build the business, such as the scaling up book that I'm talking about, to have a process basically saying this is how the company is going to work. Because end of the day, all of us do three things, right? Build, sell, and count. <laughs> right? Old, old business, if you think of, you know, a single individual, when they put up a store, they, that's what they do. They build something, sell something, count the money. And you have to do those three. But question is, the process, the, the, the habit of building a quarterly goal is so extremely important because then in a year you get four, you know, iterations to get to your goal. And every quarter that doing those five important things, strategic things, along with doing the tactical meeting your goal is, is extremely important because you have to continuously morph the company towards where the industry is going. And in, in, the, in the business world, you could absolutely be, you know, totally out, i.e. obsolete. Like if you look at, you know, the film, you know, the, the camera film industry, it doesn't exist anymore, right? So, yeah, right. Yeah, Kodak, Kodak was an example, yeah. Exactly. So you have to continuously also think, you know, what is going to make me obsolete? So you got to continuously build you know, new capabilities in your organization at the same time remaining profitable because if you have money in the bank as a company, you could make a whole lot of mistakes and still su survive to thrive, right? Mm -hmm. So so as you grow, as you morph, as you build new capabilities, that that's the yin and yang, right? The bottom line, you got to keep building, but at the same time, the yang is you got to remain profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I tend to call it the sustainable profitability, i.e. don't make, you know, harsh judgments to make profit today and then not make money tomorrow, i.e. the golden goose syndrome. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, just basically when you make profit, make sure it's sustainable. So you do things, the right things to make the customer successful while you make money and make sure you make money because if you don't have the cash, you're dead. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the book several times uh, that you think a lot of, Scaling Up, yes? Yes, yes. And who wrote that? Uh, it's the founder of Entrepreneurs Organization that I belong to. Uh, his name is Varn Harnish. Okay. And uh, what he did is basically consulted with 10,000 or so companies over this 20, 30 years of Entrepreneurs Organization, which is an organization of companies that are of CEOs that are million-plus company. Uh, you know, they run. So there's CEOs uh, of million plus companies that, you know, belong to the organization. And this gentleman started it and he consulted with a lot of people. This company is growing them from one to 10 mil and 10 to 100 mil. And the best practices that came out of this process of consulting 
are solidified in this book. And it's, and it's sometimes difficult to implement by yourself. You probably need a coach to to hold you accountable mm-hmm. while you are you know while you are driving towards your revenue goal and profit goal. This processes you know like they are very agile processes like daily huddle like me and my management team meet at nine thirty five every morning to to sync up mm-hmm. and. And you know, in a team environment, that's the biggest problem: is that people are not synced. Right. Yeah. So, so syncing up, strategizing once a quarter, quarterly goals, sustainable profitability. These are, I think, are crucial habits to be successful as an entrepreneur. That's fantastic. Now, you referred often to this entrepreneurs group. I think you've mentioned to me you called it a mastermind. Yes. Well, it's a it's a the entrepreneurs organization has this structure called a forum, and a forum is eight or so entrepreneurs that meet every month um, and discuss their challenges. Because you know, as an entrepreneur, it's very easy to feel you are the only one that goes through this hell. So, right. <laughs> because you know you are working hard, your family is not happy because you're working too hard, your customers not happy because you just are growing, your processes are not perfect all that so it's a good place where we all sit down and go okay we are not the only one you all have the same problem so let's talk about it um and the cool thing about is that we in the forum we talk about personal as well as professional problems and you know what you see is that many a times you you basically see something before they occur to your business because somebody else faced it, and you saw seven other CEOs pitch and give their views. So when that happens to your business, you're already ready to go. Mm-hmm. Right? So it gives you quite a bit of that kind of solutions up front, as well as you get to see entrepreneurs through different phases of their life. And you, you, know, you see people being successful, then you go, what did they do over the last five years you have been meeting? You know, what were the ingredients that make them successful? And, and you try to replicate that in your business. Napoleon Hill talks about the mastermind. Absolute, yeah, the mastermind. He says that ultimately, without that, that's the if that's missing, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna fall short of achieving the the dream that you've set out to achieve. And so I'm glad that you shared that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years, my friend? I see us achieving 10 mil, which is kind of my holy grail for short term. So that would be a, a great goal. The the other goal, of course, is to you know be able to be able to spend more quality time with with family as the business grows. You know, be able to delegate some of the stuff to manager level people. Of course, keeping sustainable profitability in mind. I don't want to spend a lot, but want to spend properly. And 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 actually, at that point, have a 10 million plus business that is still scalable. You know, and and has potential to grow further, and enriching the lives of customers and employees. You know, and shareholders. That's kind of the holy grail of a CEO, right? To make sure all of them would like to do repeat business with me still. And I know you're going to do it. Uh, there is no question in my mind. Thank would you. you would, absolutely, my friend. Would you Would you like people to contact you of it all? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind um, because, you know, like anybody in the journey of success, you know, whatever I can help with, I try. I can always share structures that helped work for me. Times, of course, <laughs> sometimes limited, but, you know, try my best always. I'm happy to. So how can people reach you? What's the best way? 
That's a good question. Let me think and get back to you because whatever expectation I set, I want to make sure that you know I can I can actually fulfill that because okay. You know what I mean? Don't want to give uh, you know options out to people where I can't really help them out. So so it could be something like an hour session that I can you know sit down every two weeks where you know open session that anybody can join in ask questions. That might be the easiest way to do it. I'm thinking. Can they find you on LinkedIn? They can, yeah. Uh, Tapas Banerjee, uh, CEO of Webit Solutions. So spell it slowly for them. Uh, it's T-A-P-A-S, first name. Last name is B-A-N-E-R-J as in James, E-E, two E's at the end. Tapas uh, Banerjee on LinkedIn. That's that's a good way because then people, then you can get an idea of what they're about, what they need, and you can um, connect with people by choice. That's wonderful. Absolutely. Tapas, I can't thank you enough, my friend. You have given, um, this is gold. I mean, there's so much here for anyone who wants to create and live into a story that brings enrichment and success. And to do so in the economy that is quickly becoming the entrepreneur's world. Thank you very, very much, my friend. Thanks, Louis. Appreciate the opportunity. My sincere thanks to everyone who tuned in live today. Tapas has given you many powerful resources that you can use to grow and transform. We talked about some great books like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, Robert Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant and Rich Dad Poor Dad, Jim Collins's Good to Great, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, and a book that's one of Tapas's favorites, Scaling Up. Remember that our sponsor, Audible, is making available to you a free audiobook of your choice from 180,000 titles. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power to claim your free book. That's www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. If you got value from the show, visit us on iTunes and Stitcher. Leave us a rating and review and click subscribe. Also, make sure to visit changeyourstorypodcast.com and claim your free ebook, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. During the next week, think about this. The quote from Seth Godin's book, reminded you that it's your turn. Decide that it's your turn to change your story and change your life. Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.